0: wow, it's the first time I've actually looked up, and uh, I thought we were going to get to test whether the Lord literally meant what he said when he said when two or three of us are gathered together that he'll be with us. So I thought it was going to be Pastor Kurt and Dana and the worship team and me, and uh, there you are. Um, uh, So today, the church all over the world is celebrating Pentecost Sunday. What a perfect day for the culmination of a sermon series called The Church on Fire. In Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, you know what happened. The long-awaited promise of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was fulfilled. And so what came through was the wind and the fire, the power and the purity to establish the new church. Uh, this created a real stir in Jerusalem because a whole bunch of things started happening that were really amazing, and so they had lots of run-ins really quickly with the religious authorities. And some of the apostles got thrown in jail. If you read the first five chapters, six chapters or so, you see a lot of that going on in the book of Acts. Um, But then a history-defining event happened. Look with me on the screen in chapter 6, or in your text if you have it. Uh, Look at verse 8. And Stephen... Full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. And so now, Stephen launches into this amazing, if you want to learn a whole bunch about the history of Israel, just read the sixth and seventh chapter, and Stephen, in two chapters from memory, just gives the whole Hebrew nation history. It's astounding that he knew it that well. And um, so there he goes, and and, um, he gave a brutally honest account of Israel's unfaithfulness. He talks about their idolatry. He says they ignored the word. And then he brought the story up to date, bad for his hearers, and he launches on them. And he starts telling them this. Look at verse 51 in chapter 7. Chapter 7, a new paragraph there. Verse 51, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart and ears... User friendly, the church was back then. Um, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Now he asks them a question Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute and they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one? Ready? Whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. Verse 53. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now, they weren't particularly pleased with that part of the message. They were all probably, probably amen and tracking when he was doing all the great history of Israel. And then he launches into them. And so, um, so uh, here comes the response. Verse 54. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth. Now, this is a true uh, biblical understatement. The, the, the I, don't, I don't know of any I don't know of any place where in the scripture a picture is more worth a thousand words. So you want to you want to know what the crowd looked like? Here's what the text would say if somebody drew the picture in. Let, let's see that um, picture. That's what the Pharisees looked like that day. Okay. So now. You know, I'm sure Stephen's heart was warmed and he's really ready to go. Um, this isn't a mix into heaven with that surrounding him, and he says this amazing thing. I see Jesus at the right hand of God. He has a vision of Jesus in heaven as the king. And amazingly enough, he's willing to say that because he knows what's coming next. He's a good Hebrew of that day, and they lose it. They completely go crazy. They drive him out of the city, and they stone him to death. Now, I want you to envision being stoned. Um, let me put it this way. Have you, have, you ever, um, have you ever hit your finger with a hammer? Or have you ever, like, closed your hand in a car door? Or something like that? Uh, a Crush is really painful. A gunshot wound happens so fast, a lot of times people don't feel that much pain. But when you, okay, when, when, a, when, a, uh, when a bowling ball falls on your foot, it's horrible. Imagine that happening all simultaneously to your body, all over your body, all at the same time. And in the midst of this incredible pain, his final words are inconceivable. That's happening And here's what he says, verse 60, the last verse in chapter 7. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Can you believe this? Now, I think it's important for us to realize, it's one thing for us as believers to have compassion for the lost as a general principle. I think probably most people, maybe every follower of Christ here, have a deep sense of compassion for lost people because all of us realize we're really glad that there was grace for us when we were lost. And a lot of us realize that if for no other reason, I'm going to give grace to people who are lost because if I hadn't had it, I'd be right where they are. So as a principle and even as a way to look around at people Lots of us have lots of grace for lost people, okay? But (laughs) think about this. Stephen's prayer for his murderers boggles the mind. He is asking God to forgive them while they're executing him. This is, you ready? What seems beyond human. What seems superhuman, but as we're going to see, It's actually just perfectly human. Look at this. We read this in a verse that is amazing, right? Immediately this passage probably comes to you as a parallel. Look from Luke chapter 23. When they came to the place called the skull or Calvary, there they crucified him. But Jesus saying was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Snapshot in your mind, back to Lord Stephen's words. Don't hold this sin against them. Can you believe it? Look at the parallel. When Stephen was being executed, he reacted exactly, completely, fully, like Jesus did. So I want to now talk about a passage that is actually another perfect parallel, but it's not obvious at all. It is a verse that we've heard so many times that its familiarity can obscure the depth of its meaning. But this verse is so remarkable, I actually consider it one of the top five most unlikely statements in all of Scripture. If you really let it sink in, this is utterly astonishing. Look at it, Genesis 1, first chapter of the Bible. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. By the way, if whenever I teach from there, I try to make sure that people realize God's not schizophrenic. He's Trinitarian, okay? It, it, it's not... Uh, you know, uh, what is it, roses are red, violets are blue, I'm a schizophrenic and so am I, right? That's not this kind of pathology, okay, going on here. It's God, the three in one, talking to each other and they actually say, we're going to make them like us. Try to let that sink in. This is the creator of the universe speaking If you really think about what this says, it's an impossibly absurd statement. And yet, you ready? This, we're going to make them in our image, is the greatest single point of the entire creation of the universe. I'm going to make them like me. So you ready? It's an absurd but true key concept. Here's your first blanks. Write them in. God created us... To be like him, the single most amazing human attribute is that we were made to reflect the very greatness of the Creator Himself. It's think of this; it's the highest compliment in the history of the cosmos. God says to humanity, "I want you to be like Me." So Genesis one six. How is it a parallel to Acts seven sixty? That's Stephen saying the amazing thing in the midst of agony and suffering. He's exactly like Jesus at the crucifixion. And Stephen, guess what Stephen was being? Just like God. Perfect parallel passages. See, the world was seeing with laser sharp clarity someone who was made in the image of God. He was a spectacular example of the very reason why God created us in the first place. He created us to be like Jesus. And this shows an astonishing fact about Stephen. Ready? Here's your blanks. When Stephen, in excruciating agony, said, Lord, don't hold this against them, forgive them, he was perfectly reflecting his creation in the image of God. Stephen, guess where Stephen was living out of? Genesis chapter 1. I want Stephen to be like me and at the worst moment thinkable, he was just like Genesis 1. What an amazing concept. Now, I want us not to miss something. Most biblical commentaries focus on Stephen's martyrdom as the key aspect of this passage. But look, Martyrdom wasn't Stephen's highest calling. Let that sink in. See, throughout history, a lot of people have been martyred for a lot of things. In fact, you can be a martyr for evil things. You can be a martyr by flying jet airplanes into the sides of skyscrapers. You can be a martyr for all kinds of wrong reasons. So, you ready? Stephen's great calling wasn't to be a martyr. His great calling was to be like God. So, here's your, here's your blank. Think about this. And uh, It just is mind-boggling. Ready? Key concept. Every believer is called to be like Jesus, even though most of us will never be called to be a martyr. You know what's interesting is when you read the lives of the martyrs, It looks like the martyrdom to them was fairly easy. You know what's hard? Living like Jesus. The really hard thing. So here comes the application. Here's your blanks. The greatest of all human failure is to fall short of God's high calling for us. It's the great failure. Now let's pick back up on the concept that the highest compliment in the cosmos is when God said to humanity, I want you to be like me. When Genesis 1 said this, it it gave God's purpose for creating the human race. And this is a key concept. Ready, write it in. God's great calling on every human being is for us to share his character. Don't care who you are. When God allowed your conception at that moment, he was saying, that one is made to share my character. But notice, this truth also creates the potential for humanity's greatest failure. See, it's when those who were created in the very image of God try to find fulfillment in being something less than what we were made to be. In other words, our greatest failure is when we try to find happiness or purpose or hope or fulfillment outside of God's will for what he built us for. See, here's the great failure. While God has been trying to make us like himself, now this is the part where you know, I have, when I take the spiritual gifts test, you know, that when it comes to the shepherd part, you know, Pastor Kurt probably is a, what, you know, gets like a 17 or something like that on, you know, you can get like 25. Well, I get zero. Um, so just so you know, but on the other hand, you know, I also don't fall apart when you're trying to die and I need to stick, you know, stick large needles in your neck or your groin to save your life, right? It's really, there's some upsides to having zero shepherd. Um, shut up. I'm saving your life. Uh, okay? So, so notice with me now, this is not what any of the other pastors would say, but, but uh, here it is. Um, see, while God has been trying to make us like himself, you know what many of us have been doing? We've been running around making ourselves into pompous little self-proclaimed gods. He made me to be like him. No, I want to be like me. Okay, so look at this. How's it, how's it happen? It, it, it's, I'm going to run my life the way I want to. No one's going to tell me how to live. I want what I want. I, I think this worldview, some of this, when I mention the very name, you'll see the face of the guy singing, and it'll bring tears to your eyes. One of the great announcements, maybe the honest, most honest American song ever sung in all of history, one of the great songs of the 20th century, I did it my way. Hooray! Hooray! Do you realize that announces the worldview of America? I did it my way. Okay, so this self-deification is nothing new. We've been doing this for a long time, and you're probably familiar with the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. So the, the, the world has set itself up in defiance against God, and they intended to show this by building a tower to heaven. Look at the fourth Verse of chapter 11 of Genesis. And they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. It's important to understand that in the ancient eastern vernacular, that would have basically been saying, let's show God that we're God. See, we can go into heaven too. Look how amazing we are. But God's response to the rebellion is an absolutely astonishing one. It's another parallel to Genesis 1, 26. Look at this. The Lord came down to the city to see the tower the sons of men had built, and the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they are all the same language. And now, this is, remember, this is the one who can speak a hundred million galaxies into existence. And he's talking about us. And look what he says. Now, nothing, now, nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them do you realize how great he made humanity? It's unbelievable. What an incredible statement by God. Look how great he made us to be. In fact, God has made humans so great that many biblical translators have chickened out with Psalm 8:5. So, if you've been around here a long time and you've ever heard me teach on a subject even close to this, I bring up the mistranslation, the chicken-out version in most of yours, unless you have the you know the real Bible, the New American Standard. Um, the, the, if you, by the way, if you're a visitor, completely forget that I just said that. But uh, except for a few translators, they chicken out. Okay, look at Psalm 8:5 mistranslated. Is it up there? There it is. Right. That's what we all thought, and that's what most of the Bibles that got carried into here say. That's not what it says. Are you ready for what the Bible text in Hebrew actually says? Here it is. You made humans a little lower than Elohim, a little lower than God. Now, this is truly ironic in our culture, isn't it? Because for generations, the church has appropriately been battling the philosophy of secular humanism. But do you know where the highest humanism ever conceived of came from? The Bible. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. God has never shared his divinity. He's never shared his all power, his all knowledge, right? Omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence. He's never shared that. So notice that over and over again, God through the scripture says, I am God, there's a, uh, there is no other. I am God and there's no one like me. So these passages aren't saying that we can be divine, but you know what they are saying? We can share his character. In this sense, we can be like God. God. And when we walk like him and talk like him and live like him, we're placed in a position of almost unlimited potential. So think about this. The pyramids, Dana and I have had the privilege one time of going to the pyramids. Absolutely astounding. It's kind of like the Grand Canyon. You go away, you take pictures, you try to talk about it, and you, find you just give up. Right? It just, it's just so stunning. And do you know they were made before 3000 B.C.? And researchers have found that the bases of these structures are no more, they're they're on their edges, they're more than two football fields long, and in all of their dimensions, none of the dimensions are off. The actual building technology somehow got them no more than a quarter of an inch off at any of their corners. 5,600 years ago, humans did that. Um, Do you know how uh, how great God made us? Think about this. We went to the moon after we had fallen. <laughs> Let that sink in. See, with only a remnant of our greatness, we could go to the moon half a century ago. But imagine what we could have accomplished if God hadn't had to confuse our languages and confuse, had, not, had to unconfuse us about who God really is, not us. In fact, just think of this. Imagine if your Mac could talk to your PC. Do you realize how much less software you would have to pay for? I mean, just think about this. So let's step back for a second. The biblical concept gives us a completely different understanding of the human potential movement. (laughs) They aren't so much wrong, they're just misguided. Here's what they teach. When I find the real me, I'll have reached the ultimate potential. And in fact, you ready? That's actually true. But here's where they went wrong. Since God made us in his image, we'll never find the real me until we find the real him. And then when we allow him to make us like himself, our potential is nearly unlimited. Unlimited. The three of them up in heaven will say, holy cow, look what they're gonna do if we don't confuse their language. He made us that great until we get in the way. See, throughout history, we've rejected what God made us to be, and we've been building our own towers and our own kingdoms. And think of Genesis 11 again. Even if they had succeeded in building the Tower of Babel, you ready? Let let this kind of just sink in. Even if they had succeeded in building the Tower of Babel, you know what it would have been? A pile of rocks. That's what it would have been. And they would have sat around thinking they're all that and declaring themselves God. And what they do? They piled up some rocks. So here's the ironic error of the human potential, ready? This is, if you're not filling anything else in, fill this one in, because this is what God is telling us in Genesis 1. The world believes that going our own way is the ultimate expression of human achievement, But in fact, going our own way is actually the ultimate expression of underachievement. And now let's connect the discussion to the universal excuse that humans make when we break a promise or we get caught doing something shady or when we finally fess up that we're living a lie. It's an excuse that you've heard millions of times and you've undoubtedly used yourself. We all have. Ready? Here it is, write it in. The common justification when we fall short of what we know we should be I'm only human. But the very first chapter of the Bible blows this excuse out of the water. The amazing concept that God made us in his own image means that the truth is actually exactly the opposite. That's being like an animal, run by your instincts, out of control. Not having the freedom to do what you know you ought to do. Being in shackles, being in prison, that's being an animal. So are you ready for the complete flip-flop? Here it is. The complete flip-flop of the universal excuse, write it in. When a, a human sins, we're not just being human, we're actually being less than human. See, before the fall, Adam and Eve were fully human. But after they tried to be their own God, they fell from the incredible heights that they were made for. So, when we ignore God's word, and we determine our own path, and we choose our will over his, we aren't just being human, we're actually being way less than human because God made us to be like him. Hmm. That's a bit of a different look at sin, isn't it? So think of it this way. We were created to live out of Genesis 1, made in God's image. But when we go our own own way, guess where we're living out of? We're living out of Genesis 3. We're joining the enemy, asking, did God really say? Did God really say that? We're just just falling for the same that, by the way, there's no new age. It's just the old age all over again. It's the first question: Did God really say? Is this really his will? We're joining the enemy in that. Notice how we're living out of Genesis 3. See, um, what what we actually mean when we say in Genesis 3, hey, would you like to be like God? Right? In Genesis 3, they're saying, we want to be like God. You know what they're actually saying? They're not saying, we want to be like God in Genesis 3. You know what they're saying? They're saying, we want to be God. That's the difference. So, are you gonna be a Genesis 1 human or a Genesis 3 human? Made in God's image, chosen to live out of Genesis 1, I let him make me like Elohim, him, God. But now let's take a step back. Many of us here at Renovation take the Christian life really seriously. And and when we... Been called to completely surrender ourselves to Him, we've said yes, yes exclamation point, and we've promised that we'll be faithful to Him. But sometimes, just even sometimes, even a short time later, we're we're back to where we were before. Here we thought, you know, I said yes. I thought I settled the issue. We were going to live fully for Christ. But then, let me just give a few of the the list: temptation or busyness boredom distraction exhaustion or hardship or something else led us to forget the promise that we made like this morning when we sang Lord be my everything oh I was just a, that was just a church song I didn't really mean it see because things get in the way of following through and we forget that promise and we settle back into old patterns or habits or lukewarmness you were really serious about when you said yes but here you are again And today, we heard Stephen's incredible testimony in the face of great danger and pain as he laid down his life just like Jesus. And so you may hear this story, this is important, and you may think, I just can't be like that. No matter how hard I try, I just, it's not in me. And you know what the great news is? That's what the Bible's been trying to say to us all of our non-Christian life and all of our Christian life. It's not in you. You're right, you can't pull it off because only when we get to this point of understanding our complete inability to keep our promises to God are we finally ready to hear the brutal truth about us, and you ready? This is as true of of believers as it is as unbelievers, ready? Write it in. We can't be like Stephen unless we have what Stephen had. But this is actually good news. You ready for this? There was nothing special about Stephen. There was nothing special about Stephen, except one thing. Here's the key concept, write it in. What was special about Stephen was who he was full of. Pentecost Sunday, friends. Look at this. Repeat it. Here's a short list about Stephen from Acts 6. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 7. And they began gnashing their teeth at him. Remember? Remember what, what they looked like? And yet look what is said about Stephen. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God. Notice, full of the Holy Spirit, church, full of the Holy Spirit. Unless we see this about Stephen, we'll never be able to understand his life. You see, if Stephen tried to be like Christ on his own strength, imagine Stephen all of his life. Maybe I'll be the first martyr. Okay, I'm gonna, when that day comes and they're beating me to a pulp. I'm gonna be just like Jesus and I'm gonna say, oh, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Do you know how how many times would Stephen had to promise to have that within Stephen? An infinite number of promises would never have made him like Jesus when he died. So think about this. What was different about Stephen was what he allowed God to do in him. Oh my. You see, if Stephen tried to be like Christ on his own strength, doesn't matter how sincere he is. He can't do it, and we can't. But you know what the great news is? Stephen's not a one-of-a-kind. Stephen's supposed to be the picture of every believer, whether we're ever called to be martyred or not, because every one of us is called to be like Christ. So, the only thing that explains Stephen's joyful martyrdom is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. His holiness, his power... His Christ-likeness didn't come from him, and this exposes a great problem in today's church. Many of us are trying to be like Christ, ready, on our own power. A whole bunch of Christians think what you do is you go to church, and you work real hard because you know you're supposed to be like Jesus, and you work as hard as you can at being like Jesus, and oh my, think about that. See, It doesn't matter how hard we try. We can never be holy through our own effort. We can never purify ourselves, folks. But American Christianity often fails to declare the fullness of the gospel. You know, in the American church, often what is announced is the ability of God to forgive sin, but leaves out the ability of God to change the sinner. That's why you get, I'm going to lose my cookies the next time I see it, the bumper sticker that says, Christians aren't perfect, we're just forgiven. You know what that is? Genesis 3. Just, we're just human. No, we were made to be like Jesus, and Jesus intends to make us like himself. So you're ready for the calamity of the partial gospel? Here it is, write it in. The gospel preached by the American church often, not always, often calls sinners to be merely forgiven rather than Transformed. So here's the problem with the partial gospel. Everyone knows that when we come to Christ, we're supposed to declare him Lord. We're supposed to surrender. And we're supposed to commit our lives to him, right? Okay, if anybody is, at, you know, if you're at the altar with somebody becoming, you know, coming to the Lord, and they cross their fingers and say, Lord, I want you to be my Lord, you, you know they're not being a, becoming a Christian, right? Right, that, that's not, every believer Wherever they are, as they become a believer, they say, Lord, I want you to be Lord of everything. And they mean it. And they're honest. For those of us who have lived a lot longer after we became Christians, we just know they don't realize what they're saying. It's worse than what we said when we said, I do. Talk about clueless 43 years ago. I didn't have a clue. By the way, she was in junior high, I think, when I married. Her parents had to sign for her. I really scored. So I want us to think about this for a second. It's an incredibly important biblical truth. This will sound like heresy until you hear me explain it. Ready? Write it in. Forgiveness, consecration, and surrender aren't enough. Stephen couldn't have promised himself into forgiving his executioners, no matter how many times. Listen, church. If he had responded to the first part of the gospel, having his sins forgiven, but hadn't also responded to the full calling of Pentecost, what would have happened when the heat was turned up? If he'd been forgiven, but not empowered, purified, and changed, guess what? Stephen would have been a Christian, he'd have been a follower of Jesus. But he never would have stood boldly before the powers of darkness, willingly giving his life for his Savior, and caring more about his enemies being forgiven than he cared about his own life, just like Christ. Now let's stop for a moment. Perhaps as you look at your life, that's what you see. Maybe many times you told God you'd live for him, you'd obey him, no matter what. But then, despite trying as hard as you could, you fell back to the same sins and attitudes and habits. Oh, man, that is so so common and it's so painful. So what's the answer to our quandary? I think these are probably your last blanks. Ready? I'll give it in two key concepts. Key concept number one, completely surrendering our will is our part. Oh, we do have to surrender. But it's not enough. Key concept number two the miracle of empowering and purifying us is God's part. Stephen's explained only by both things. Our part is to submit to God's will, his part is Pentecost, the wind and the fire, the power and the purity. Because in our strength, folks, we can't resist temptation. We can't stand against the enemy. Only God can supply the purifying flame. Folks, only God can set the church on fire. We can do a lot of stuff. We can have a lot of programs. We can ask people to consecrate, consecrate, consecrate. But if we don't preach the full gospel, not just sin forgiven, but sinner changed, then our gospel will never have power and it will never be pure. So, true holiness isn't a result of effort. By the way, that should be a great relief to some of us who've been trying so hard to be holy, <laughs> right? The, you look at the disconnect between what I'm supposed to look like and what I'm actually doing and choosing. What a relief to find out that God already knows I can't do it. I can't make myself holy, and he has an incredible thing waiting for us. See, we can surrender over and over again, but no matter how hard we try, we'll never make ourselves Christ-like. Now, if you've been trying to be faithful in your own strength, you will always fail. So let me ask you, have you actually been filled with the Holy Spirit? Filled. Filled with the Holy Spirit it's strange how seldom that question is asked in the church today because do you know what the day that Jesus was resurrected from the dead they had a crucified incarnate perfect lamb dead and buried died for their sin raised from the dead they had everything they needed right Jesus said, don't, dare, don't you dare leave yet. You wait. What did they need? They didn't. They, they were followers. They were believers. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. They believed that God raised him from the dead. They saw it with their own eyes. But it wasn't enough. Don't you dare leave until what? Until you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Listen to me. Being a Christian, being a follower of Christ is not enough. And it is a miserable life. Just being a Christian is a miserable life. So now look at this, look at this. Have you actually been filled with the Spirit? And if you have, are you being refilled? Is it fresh? Is it current? Is it real today? Do you know all the people who were at Pentecost also show up in chapter 4 of Acts? And you know what it says? They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, wait a second, I thought they were. By the way, if you were filled with the Holy Spirit 30 years ago and that's what you've been living on, Uh, By the way, it only took 24 hours for manna to stink and have worms in it. Your grace is really bad if it's 30 years old. You see, it's every day the refreshing filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, some of us may wonder, why has God set the bar so high? And the answer is, because he made us to be incredible. He made us to be champions. He made us to be like him. This is why he calls us to purity, and this is why he calls us to holiness, Because when we actually allow him to make us into people who share his character, guess what? There's almost no limit to what he can do through us. That's how he wants to save the world. Through people transformed to be like God. But here's the only way it's possible. First, we intentionally completely surrender our will. God will not drag anybody kicking and screaming to being like him. He waits for us to do our part. But that's not enough. The next thing that has to happen is God has to do a miracle in us. He has to fill us with his spirit. And then we continue to cooperate with the spirit in an ongoing relationship. So I like Wesley's grid. Initial sanctification is when I gave my heart to Christ. Entire sanctification is at a point when I figure out, I gave my heart to Christ and I've been forgiven and I've been forgiven, and, but I'm still, I'm still full of me. And that believer comes to the point where they go, like, oh, my goodness, Lord, as a believer, I can't do it. I need something else. And he does that amazing infilling of the Holy Spirit like he did in Paul. Three days before, he, is, he uh, comes to Christ, and then he's the three days later, he's filled with the, Lord, the Spirit. But you know what? There, uh, what I love about Wesley was when he was asked the question of, is this an event or is it a process? Without hesitation, he'd say it's both you got to have Acts chapter 4, and Acts chapter 5, and Acts chapter 6, and Acts chapter 7, where these filled people were refilled again and again. So here's what's key. One of the reasons why the church talks a little about it is because in some traditions, the infilling or the baptism of the Holy Spirit has been made into some mysterious thing. In some places, it's even strange. It's like, well, you know, if you're really filled with the Holy Spirit like Paul, you can play with snakes and serpents, and at the U of A, we have the... We have the international event and, um event uh, database and I can, I can promise you that this, the, uh, that kind of filling of the Holy Spirit doesn't keep you from getting bit by the rattlesnake. I've taken care of plenty of the people. It doesn't work that way. So, so set all of those concepts of what it means to have, be baptized by the Holy Spirit apart for a moment and you're ready for this. How are we filled with the Spirit of Christ? We ask. Emergency physician not an internist. It's not a paragraph, but it's that simple. You ready? Look at the word from Luke chapter 11. Now suppose one of you fathers asks his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, (laughs) I love this, being evil, (laughs) know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That's right. You know what it is? A willing, surrendered heart just asks. I want more, Lord. I don't want to just be forgiven. I want to be like you. Pastor Josiah, come on up. Now, we just learned God's lofty plan for us. So maybe some here this morning have have realized that you're stuck in a cycle of failure. You're stuck in what seems to be a trap. It it goes like this. I've had so many people describe this to me. Christians, we sin and repent, and then we sin again, and then we repent again. And that's like, that's the Christian life? That's maybe the next 60 years is that cycle of failure? Well, Stephen's life shows that not only can we be forgiven, we can actually have victory over sin, but it'll never happen in our own strength, no matter how hard we try. See, only victory only comes when fully Jesus lives in us. I love how Wesley said it. Listen to this. Jesus wants to fill us so fully with himself that there's no room left for sin. When, he, when people said, well, is it, it, when people asked him, well, don't Christians sin? And he said, of course, we have the freedom. God doesn't take your free, by the way, you don't have free will until you get saved, and then it's taken away. No. Notice, I love how he says this. Jesus wants to fill us so fully with himself that there's no room left for sin. All that's there, all that there's room for is a person who's been restored to what God created them to be. Genesis 1. All that's left of me is what God made me to be. So as you ponder Stephen's power and fearlessness and holiness, do you want what he had? Now, by the way, as you know, that's not a trick question. That's a hard question. Because look where it ended him up. Do you really want what Stephen... Had? Do you really want to be like Jesus? Then here's your part. You surrender completely to God's will, but you don't stop there because every Christian starts that way. Everyone starts there. That's your part. But if you stop there, you'll have a miserable Christian life. It's miserable to know that we're supposed to be like Christ and find out again and again that we can't be. But you surrender, and in faith you ask Jesus to fill you with his spirit, and guess what the good Father will do? The good Father who loves us will give us what we ask for. And he'll free you from yourself so that you can stand in the face of any temptation and any circumstance and any danger and you can proclaim victory because he's become your everything, like we sang. Just say this. Let me give you some thoughts and words. In a few minutes, we're just going to all kneel, uh, those of us that are physically able, uh, in a minute. But, But let me give you some words that have been helpful to me. Lord, I really do want to be like you. I do. Do you want to be like Jesus? Or are you like just doing the church thing here? I think most of you, maybe all of you, really want to be like Jesus. Lord, I really do want to be like, I really want all that you have for me, and I realize that I can't be like you on my own. I'm too fess up. I'm too selfish. I'm too sinful. And I'm a slave to what I want. So, Lord, I need you to perform a miracle I actually don't need to be good. I need to be changed. Fill me with your spirit so I'm really like you. So this morning, without any fanfare, without any emotional manipulation, I just want to ask you a simple question. Do you want to be like God? The Genesis chapter 1, kind of, do you want to be like God, and if you do, and you really mean it, if you ask, He will fill you and remake you into His image. So, as we respond, I, this message isn't merely uh, some of us have thought. No, that's that's like for the super Christians. No, this is for every single believer. It's for every believer, and so I don't want to create a barrier to anyone to respond. So so I want, as the worship team leads us, if you're physically able, just right now, just just kneel in your seats. Let's just turn this whole place into an altar. Everybody who's physically able, just kneel in your seats. And um, I want you to ask yourself, as you're kneeling there, I want you to ask yourself these questions. Do I really want to be like Jesus? And am I really willing to surrender every part of my life to God? And will I allow him to perform the miracle of filling me with his spirit right now? As the team sings, will you allow God to transform your life and make you like Jesus? Pastor Josiah.